6: Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Donald Trump is back, and he's using white supremacist blood and soil rhetoric. We have a great show today. Tim Alberta talks about his new book, The Kingdom, the Power and the Glory, American Evangelicals in the Age of Extremism. Then we'll talk to Geraldo Cadaver about the drifting political alignments of Hispanic voters. But first, we have the host of the enemies list. The one, the only, the Lincoln Project's Rick Wilson. Welcome back. It's a Sunday, Rick Wilson. I have a dog on my lap to keep her from barking. We got Rick Wilson here and baby Bucephalus. Rick Wilson.
7: Good afternoon. Good morning. Good evening. Whatever the hell time it is right now. I'm on my third (laughs) cup of coffee and I slept until nine o'clock, which is psychotic.
6: What? (laughs) I myself have been up for 15 hours. (laughs) So Rick Wilson, it is a schadenfreude Sunday.
7: Right now, I'm just pouring one out for the late DeSantis super pack head, uh, Jeff Rowe. (laughs) Jeff Rowe, the guy who in 2022 had 11 candidates and lost 10 of them, who spent $100 million people's money in 2022. And yet somehow Ron DeSantis woke up and said, you know, this grifter from Texas uh, seems to me like the guy who could take me all the way to the White House. And uh, they got rid of him yesterday.
6: Did they fire him yesterday?
7: My understanding from the Tallahassee rumor mill is that they...
6: I love that Tallahassee rumor mill.
7: We grind, baby.
6: Oh, I know.
7: That they shit-canned him, fired him, kicked his ass to the curb, told him to get the fuck out. Pack your shit. Have a security guard walk him out of the building, essentially. Now, folks, don't cry for Jeff Rowe. Yeah,
6: because he has millions of donor dollars. Because of
7: the 80 plus a million dollars that have been spent by Ron DeSantis, 67 cents of every dollar, from what I am told, has run through the companies of Jeff Rowe. <laughs> so Jeff is OK. He's going to cry his way all to go private jet shopping by the end of this. To ask. Add-
6: Spend. Yeah, exactly. That's incredible. Congratulations, Jeff Rowe. You know, look, I am just happy that money didn't go to making Ron DeSantis D president. I want to stop for a minute and just. Muse on Ron DeSantis's bad judgment for two seconds because Ron DeSantis,
7: if he had didn't have bad judgment, he had no judgment at all right. But I mean, I, I
6: want to talk about the fact that he wore those cowboy boots to every event because they made him an inch and a half taller, two inches taller. Did he think that no one would ever notice that?
7: Look, there's a lot of vanity in all political candidates, and I've seen it in various ways. And I will tell you one of the moments of vanity that is also relevant to another story this week. So when I worked for Rudy in City Hall as a senior advisor to the mayor, whatever the fuck I did, I don't know.
6: You mean America's mayor?
7: Oh, yes. This is in 1999. I remember one day.
6: By the way, I just want to pause for a second and say that while you were working for Rudy, I was hating Rudy for uh, arresting homeless people. Continue. I just want to point that out because I get so few <laughs> moments right
7: here continue well he mostly wanted to stop pooping on your stoop but okay long story short right moving, hey, moving on to the to the, <laughs> to the connection of vanity to rudy to desantis and there rudy uh, off the mayor's office there was this little tiny like a mini kitchenette kind of was like a, a refrigerator and a sink and a little thing and the stairs that led down to his secret office in the basement right and i remember one day I was talking to somebody. and We we stepped into that little cubicle because there was a bigger meeting going on in the the room. We were figuring something out. And I looked over on this little like countertop and I see this thing called topic T-O-P-P-I-K. And I'm like, what the fuck is that? I looked at it and that was that spray on hair that Rudy was using at the time and that Stephen Miller showed up on TV using that one day. And as a bald dude, I started to (laughs) laugh hysterically. But it really tells you what vanity does to these people. It fucks them up. They do things like, oh, no one will ever notice I'm wearing platform cowboy boots with lifts inside. No one will ever pick up on that. So
6: let's segue from that to one Rudolph Giuliani. There have been a number of bad weeks in a row for Rudy, but I think this might be the baddest.
7: Rudy, as I have said for some time now, he is a proof case for everything Trump touches. Dies. The rule never fails.
6: So he owes Ruby Moss and Shay Friedman $148 million.
7: And uh I'm thinking right now that Rudy cannot do enough cameos at 75 bucks a whack in the remaining years of his life <laughs> to complete this assignment. My rough math is that he's the the actuarial tables will catch up before he can do enough cameos to pay them off.
6: But again, I mean cameos as we've seen from this week from uh, everybody's favorite George mm-hmm. Santos who has a lot of botox but actually I think looks pretty good though I would have skipped out on the lip filler. He <laughs> he looks really good if he's 80. He looks less good if he's actually
7: we're on Fast Cosmetics now.
6: Yeah, yeah I'm, sorry. I'm in trouble. OK, we won't talk about his lip fillers anymore, but George Santos did prove that you can actually make quite a lot of money on Cameo, but maybe not forever.
7: Look, I think George Santos is, you know, his 15 minutes are just about up. The, the market for people buying ironic Cameos is de minimis. I don't think we're going to end up with a an industry segment of (laughs) former congressional fabulous Brazilian criminals with a secret drag identity. But look, this idea that there's this alternate world on the far right or on the MAGA right where they have an economic ability to support the madness of these people, it's just not there.
6: I was actually thinking about that because this weekend there was a Turning Point USA event. I (laughs) know. In your state, the great state of maybe it's time to move. (laughs) Um, And by the way, if I lived in the state where all the bad stuff was happening most of the time, personally, you know, but anyway, uh, where Roseanne gave quite a long speech
7: that was quite crazy. The photo of Roseanne and the QAnon shaman together Uh, As I tweeted at the time, oh, the hell mouth has opened.
6: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so those guys, I guess the QAnon, the headline here is the QAnon shaman is out of
7: jail. He's out of jail and he's apparently going to run for Congress.
6: Oh, he's running for Congress. Good. That's good. That's what you want. It's always good when you do crimes to then try to build a political platform out of it, though it has worked for Trump.
7: So there's no bottom in Florida, as you know. So so essentially, since the chairman of the Republican Party, who is in Florida, who is still holding on to his job, Christian Ziegler and his wife, Bridget, who is one of the founders of Mills for Liberty.
6: Yes, I don't think it's called Mills for Liberty. I'm pretty sure it's called Moms for Liberty. Fact check. Jesse, we need a fact check. (laughs) Hmm.
7: I like Rick's name better. I am fairly (laughs) certain that I can get it to catch on where people say it. My job, Molly, (laughs) is to be able to slip that in on the air somewhere in the next few days, and I'm going to do it. Uh
6: I think that's coming. As long as it's you and not me, that's all I care about. Bridget Ziegler, very attractive, involved in a threesome because everyone in Florida is into weird, sketchy sexual shit. Not that I'm casting aspersions. That's a throwback to earlier when I said dispersions and everyone got mad at me. Continue.
7: We were out dinner with a friend a couple of weeks ago and we're talking about this big bathroom renovation we did this year and he goes, "Oh, you have to watch this HBO series called How to Build a Sex Room." I'm like, "Do we though?" <laughs> do, do we though? <laughs> <laughs>
6: Wait, that's a series on HBO? What is happening over at HBO? One what, what of the streamers. <laughs> what is happening is Florida is taking over all of my cable <laughs> channels. You degenerates down in Florida. You guys have to clean it up so you can come to New York. But I do think a really good point here is that chair of the Republican Party of Florida trying to hold up the party for $2 million, right? That's he wants $2 million in order to leave,
7: right? Everyone in the state, Okay. God, it makes my guts churn to do this. I will give Ron DeSantis a tiny little shred of credit. The day the story came out, Ron DeSantis, or maybe the next morning, said he should step down. He could actually make him step down, though, right? He Actually, he cannot. Oh. The the governor does not have that power under the Florida party bylaws. It has to be done by the executive committee. And here's why it hasn't happened. Because... Ziegler is now being advised by Steve Bannon and Corey Lewandowski, who are telling him, hold it up. You could be a MAGA hero. If you sustain this, you'll be a MAGA hero and everyone will believe that you are. So the next day, Ziegler goes out and says.
6: And if having a threesome is wrong, Corey Lewandowski doesn't want to be right.
7: <laughs> no, indeed. Yes, continue. But with Corey's case.
6: And if a woman is wrong. I really do have, have to advise be,
7: yes. Corey that under at least New Hampshire and Massachusetts law, the threesome cannot include a farm animal. Right. Um, yeah. Stop, Corey, stop! Uh, uh, right, 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 right. Oh, Jesus Christ.
6: I I swear to God, the degenerates <laughs> in Florida. But yes, I agreed. And also, I think really important just to take a moment here as we are joking, we are also serious that there are real allegations of sexual assault. Yes,
7: and, and I, wanna, I actually wanted to get to that, Molly, for one second. As you mentioned, this would be hilarious and hypocritical and, and dumb and funny if it was a case of a threesome that got exposed. Right. But
6: right. That's not what this the is. The reason
7: the story came to light was that Christian Ziegler and his wife had been involved over a long period of time with a woman. And I, I know who she is. I'm not going to reveal it. Oh, wow. She's a much lower power status than they are. She's not a peer socially, politically, financially, any of that stuff. And they used her sexually. And then when when his wife could not make it one day, he decided that he was going to go to her house, according to police reports. And he filmed himself in what is alleged in the police reports to be a sexual assault and a rape. Yeah. And the police have recovered the video.
6: Right. And I think it's important to remember that, like, a lot of these MAGA are really ultimately about misogyny and hurting women and not treating women. I mean, there's a real kind of anti-woman, pro-violence, pro-sexual assault kind of vein that runs through this Republican Party that is really disgusting and also just morally beyond the pale.
7: If this woman had somehow gotten pregnant, let me tell you something, Christian Ziegler would be racing her like a goddamn rocket sled to get an abortion.
6: Right, right, right. Exactly. And so hypocritical, but also quite evil. Yep. But I do think, as we're talking about this, the story is just a sort of a kind of horrendous and important and, and misogynistic story. But also, Bridget was one of the founders of Moms for, Liber- for Liberty, we can say it here. And she was trying to remove books from libraries, keep gay teachers from teaching about LGBTQ issues. I mean, really quite committed to misogyny and also, you know, anti-science, anti-education, anti-literacy.
7: Well, look, I mean, this is a state where the Don't Say Gay bill had a much wider impact than people know. It also led to textbook publishers revising their textbooks to do things like adding a curriculum that says, hey, slavery had some benefits. (laughs) And to textbook authors removing the race of Rosa Parks from describing the actions of Rosa Parks and removing books off the shelves about Hank Aaron and Rosa Parks and others. This is a a state where the massive Republican power differential is so much. made
6: everyone stupid. They, they're working hard to make the children stupid. Like all one-party states, OK? Hey, man, our kids read books here. We're a blue state. We may have our problems. But but let's talk about Ron DeSantis actually said something I agreed with this week. I swear to God, he actually did. Trump will cry fraud if he loses in early states, DeSantis
7: warns. Discuss. Listen, let's not get too warm and fuzzy on Ron DeSantis, but he's not wrong, okay? He's not wrong. By the end of the month, DeSantis is going to be facing up to the realities of what's ahead of him, which is, and they already know they're about to get humiliated. That's why they fired their super PAC director. That's why they're scrambling around trying to find, you know, brand new donors, all this other stuff.
6: So they published a list of bundlers This week, which I've never, ever seen except once with Mitt Romney. And I actually called you up on the phone to ask you what you thought was going on there.
7: Yeah, it's very strange. He's trying to build this like fake momentum and trying to reboot his campaign and to sort of pressure these guys into giving more. And a lot of them, and I know some of these people, and a lot of them are like, the fuck is this? They're not coming back in for multiple millions more for a campaign that is now pulling below 10 percent. (laughs)
6: Maybe Chris Christie can give them some
7: momentum. Right. But the functional reality here of Ron DeSantis is he is a young guy politically. He is going to have to make a very quick decision after Iowa when he gets blown the fuck out. Does he try to hold on until March 12th in Florida where he's going to get blown the fuck out? (laughs) Or does he stop now, admit that he's wrong, that he can't beat Trump, join the Lincoln Project? (laughs) No. It was a good setup. You gotta say it was a good setup. No, but look, he he is a he's a very stubborn guy. He's a very arrogant guy. And he's been told since he became governor of Florida that he's the tallest, handsomest, smartest man in the room, and women want to sleep with him and men want to be him. And that problem in Florida is the governor is a very powerful position. And they have a lot of control over money and appointments and every other thing. And he's used that to the reason Ron DeSantis had so much money, everybody. Is that he his staff used that to blackmail every lobbyist and major company in Florida? They're like, you know, I'm going to be Secretary of Commerce. You better uh, straighten up and fly right. And make sure the governor mm-hmm. gets uh, the maximum donation for for his super PAC, and that's mm-hmm. why they raised eighty million dollars. It wasn't organic people going. Like, my god, he's the leader we've all been waiting for. He's the and his, Republican. His weird John F. Kennedy. smile
6: makes everybody so he's happy. so
7: normal and natural and, and at ease with and himself human, and human like. Human. His human-ish characteristics are so amazing. Yeah, he does. He
6: seems like a real boy, a real human boy.
7: <laughs> yeah. Someday I'll be a real boy, right, Casey? <laughs> Shut up, Ron, yeah. get back in your hole. <laughs>
6: Thank you, Rick Wilson.
7: Pleasure as always.
6: I sleep better at night knowing my family is protected if something ever happens to me, since I was able to compare plans very easily at policygenius.com. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quote and see how much you could save that's
2: take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic that's oracle.com strategic oracle.com strategic
6: tim alberta is a writer at the atlantic and author of the kingdom the power and the glory of american evangelicals in an age of extremism welcome to fast politics tim alberta
8: Thank you for having me.
6: Delighted, really delighted. And, you know, you have written so many things where I've wanted to talk to you about them. Today, we're talking about your book. So I feel like it's so unusual that your whole life and also politics dovetails so neatly in an odd way. And Did you think that 2016 would be the beginning of a strange evangelical kind of decade?
8: I guess looking back on it, not really. My own concerns with the evangelical church in which I was raised date back quite a bit farther. But I think obviously a lot of the things that I was seeing and witnessing and worrying about suddenly began to snowball. And the problems accelerated when Trump came on the scenes in ways that I just don't think any of us Totally foresaw.
6: Will you tell us a little bit about your your backstory? How did your father get involved? Was he born an evangelical? Born any you really have never found a thing that I know less about than evangelical Christianity. So I mean, except for like Latvian Orthodox, I mean, I really don't know any I mean anything. So and I assume some of our listeners and probably my father as well would love a sort of TLDR on it.
8: Yeah, of course. So no, my my dad was a fascinating, amazing character. He was not born into a a Christian home. In fact, his childhood was pretty broken, had a a pretty rough family life. He was brilliant and he became very successful. And he was working in finance in New York in his mid-20s, late 20s, and was married to my mother, who was working for ABC Radio in Manhattan. And They were sort of a power couple, and they had a big house, and my dad drove a Cadillac, and they were sort of on top of the world, and neither of them were religious whatsoever. Despite all of those material successes, my dad felt just this gnawing emptiness inside of him that he could not explain. And he tried to see a shrink. He tried to read self-help books. He sort of did everything that one might do, searching for what was this thing missing in his life. And he considered himself an atheist. He had, since college, he'd read all of the all of the, the books on religion and decided that he was an atheist. And yet, for reasons that only God can truly explain, one day my dad wandered into a church up in the Hudson Valley when he was visiting some family up there, and he heard the gospel of Jesus Christ for the first time. And he, that day, became born again and gave his life to the Lord. And, and then that was pretty dramatic. That was pretty, like, upsetting in his family and with his friends and his social network, people thought he'd sort of lost his mind. And then what was much more dramatic was pretty shortly thereafter, he felt that the Lord was calling him to enter the ministry, to abandon his career in finance and to go to seminary and preach. And at that point, people were like actually worried about him, like thinking that he'd pretty much gone off the deep end. But that is sort of the origin story in many ways of my family because my my folks gave up everything their their very lucrative careers and they just followed God's calling to preach and they traveled uh, around the country and lived a very penniless, modest existence, and uh, eventually put down roots at a church in Michigan outside of Detroit. And that's that's where I grew up. Uh, So I grew up very much steeped in the evangelical subculture as a result of my parents' own conversion experience.
6: Wow. Yeah. And my parents just drank to fill the emptiness. But I do appreciate that. Wow. So you grew up in the church. You had always sort of seen this coming. I mean, there's a story of of you at your father's funeral. Would you tell us that story and explain a little bit about what happened
5: there?
8: Yeah. So, I'd grown up in the church. I mean, like f- physically, literally grew up inside the church because my mom was on the staff there as well and, you know, that was my tribe. It was my community and so my my entire childhood, my entire adolescence was spent in the church. And I love a lot of the people there. To this day, there are a lot of really wonderful, amazing people who do not fit the sort of right. ugly caricature of, you know, what it means to be a sort of bloodthirsty MAGA evangelical. But... You know, as I said earlier, there were things that I saw that I observed as I was growing up that kind of, I don't know, my antenna went up and it just made me uncomfortable. And I wondered, like, what is the church really? What is it supposed to be? And are we being faithful to that? And so I sort of always kept those things to myself. But you know, I, I left and I moved to Washington and I did my work as a reporter. And eventually I wound up writing this book a few years ago on, on Donald Trump and his takeover of the Republican party. And I was you know very critical of Trump in that book and critical of many of his sort of evangelical allies for selling out in support yeah. of him. And it just so happens, Molly, that right when the book came out, uh, my dad died, like very unexpectedly, just yeah. um, a few days after the book came out. And so when I went back to michigan to our home church where he you know he had been the pastor of this church for more than 25 years i went back for the funeral and because the book was in the news and because trump was tweeting about it and rush limbaugh was talking about it on his show and all of this a number of people at the funeral uh, at the visitation just they wanted to argue with me about politics they just you know they like they'd come up and i kept thinking that they were coming up to you know give me a hug or, you know, give their condolences or whatever. And lots of people did do that. But then there were also others who sensed an opening there, saw an opportunity to try and kind of stick it to me. And and it was beyond being just sort of gross and inappropriate. It was really eye-opening because for me, it was this, kind of moment of clarity where you realize, oh, wow, like this has gotten like we are not just off the tracks. We are like we are like off the reservation. We've entered a completely different dimension here of what is the evangelical world doing? And have I willingly turned a blind eye to just how bad this has gotten? And I think the answer was yes. And so in many ways, this book is sort of my trying to make amends for that by really turning my attention to this and trying to answer these difficult questions.
6: Yeah. So interesting. I mean, I just had a death in my family, too. People say incredibly insane things to you. But I always think when people say insane things to you, it's always more about them than it is about you. I was listening to an interview you did, and I was thinking, like, did they get a bad deal or did they get a great deal? Like, you know, there's an idea in Judaism, and, you know, I'm Jewish, but I'm not very religious. A Shabbos Goy can do stuff for you on the Sabbath that a religious Jew would not do. That's what a Shabbos Goy is. I wonder if there's a sense with evangelicals that Donald Trump is that man.
8: Well, I certainly think that Trump's superpower in many ways, as it relates to his ongoing alliance with the evangelical world, is that he is not bound by biblical ethic, that he is, you know, he he doesn't have to play by the rules, which is, I think, the irony in, in this relationship is that what was once perceived to be his great weakness, you know, that he couldn't pronounce Second Corinthians and that he couldn't cite a single verse from Scripture and that he talked about how he didn't need to pray for God's forgiveness. He never had prayed for God's forgiveness. Why would he? Right. Like all of those things that were so cringeworthy to his Christian audiences at one point, I think in many ways is now his strength because yeah, he can do the dirty work. They can contract out uh, some of the unpleasantness of politics to Donald Trump, things that they themselves might not necessarily want to do or say, he can do them, he can say them on their behalf and they feel like their, their hands are clean in some way, which of course is not biblical. You are not given a pass for enabling and justifying that sort of behavior. And ultimately, I think the folks who have entered into this sort of mercenary contract with Donald Trump, I think not only will they come to regret it because you know, the, politically it will wind up backfiring and causing real distress for them down the road, But I think there will be a reckoning here where these people sooner or later, I think, are going to have to come to terms with the damage this has done to the witness of Jesus Christ. That if they truly are Christians, if they truly are followers of Jesus, then there's going to be a wake up call at some point here when they recognize how much damage they've done to the credibility of the gospel.
6: So let me ask you, because I'm going to push back on that a little bit. You know, this is like this weird thing that people who are good people have where they feel like, and I have it too, and I'm not even such a good person, but like where, you know, you think, well, eventually this is going to, but so far evangelicals have gotten a great deal out of Donald Trump. Like, I think he's delivered more than he would have had he actually believed any of the stuff. So I wonder like... Will there be a reckoning? Like, you know, I I always talk to George Conway and he's like, well, the Republican Party will eventually destroy itself. But right now they have an evangelical speaker of the House who is probably the most evangelical House speaker ever. Right. I mean, he's... Super, super committed. They keep winning, don't they?
8: It's a fair point. I mean, I would answer it in two ways.
6: I'm sorry to be a be a, to seem like a jerk here, but I mean, my fantasy is that that happens. But I just, if you're an evangelical, don't you just feel like we can't stop winning?
8: Well, it's okay. No, it's a totally legitimate point. But I, I would, I would say two things in response. One, sort of focused on the the short term earthly implications and one on the much longer term eternal implications. I'll take the second part first, in fact. So Mark chapter eight, verse 36, Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? And I think that that is the million dollar question that a lot of these folks, even if they're not grappling with it today, even if they're not grappling with it tomorrow or next year or next election cycle, they will sooner or later grapple with that question, even if even if they refuse to acknowledge that they are grappling with that question, because it is, I think, in many ways, the mirror that we hold up to ourselves as Christians to say, all of these pursuits in this world, are they of any eternal consequence? And if the answer is no, and, and, and even worse, if the answer is no, and, and these pursuits have taken me away from, taken me farther away from my eternal identity my true citizenship in heaven and my relationship with jesus christ and then that is there's nothing worse than to come to that realization as a christian i think in terms of the ephemeral political uh, pursuits for 50 years evangelicals poured themselves into the anti-abortion cause now some people have been far more sincere and faithful and invested in that issue, not just as a political wedge, but actually invested in it as a matter of believing deeply in the sanctity of human life, and have not just used it as a sort of lazy lowest common denominator culture war battle. Right, right, right. No, just taking abortion as as an example. For fifty years, they fought this fight, and they finally get what they want: Roe v. Wade struck down. And what is the net result? The net result, according to the data we have now, is that the total number of abortions is higher than it was before. I I cite that in answering your question, just to say that there was this strange thing that we're warned about throughout scripture, that that like the more you long after these things on earth, this political power, this influence, this fame, this self-glorification, the more you seek after it, the less of it you actually get. And it becomes this sort of trap. Whereas if you do the opposite, it, as Jesus says, if you f- seek first the kingdom of God, and make that your priority, then all of these other things that you think are so important, they're really not, but they'll be added unto you. In other words, if you get your priorities straight, then suddenly you don't have to obsess over politics and over culture wars and over trying to dominate the country this way. And so I do hold on to this optimism that at least at some scale, Molly, that the tail will stop wagging the dog at some point here, and that people who have been engaged in this sort of reckless political idolatry will repent of it and will get their priorities back in order.
6: Great. So you think that there'll be a moment where evangelicals will be like, holy moly, what are we doing?
8: Well, let's be clear, right? Like When when we talk about evangelicals, uh, when we talk about white evangelicals,
6: I think we're only talking about white evangelicals here, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah,
8: and you know, this is this is a this is we're talking about tens of millions of people. You know, the question for me isn't necessarily okay. Does that small militant faction of hardcore Christian nationalists who are on the warpath and are, who are hell on hijacking the institutions of government and the institutions of Christianity in this country. Like, are we going to convince them to stand down? Probably not. But I also don't invest a ton of my own time worrying about that click. I don't think that it is a huge percentage of the evangelical world. I think that they are really loud and they're really well organized. But I'm much more concentrating on the masses of evangelicals who are sort of a little bit homeless right now. Like they're 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 not people who are ever going to be like culturally and politically left, but they're also somewhere deep in their psyche and in their spirit, pretty unsettled by what's happened in Republican politics and by who Donald Trump is and really questioning like do they have any business any home in this republican party i think that identity crisis that political and cultural identity crisis in the evangelical world right now that's what i'm writing the book about and i'm thinking about the the many millions of people who I think are on genuinely on the fence and who are in a place where they could sort of break either way. Like they could be convinced to sort of buy into the far right Christian nationalist stuff, or they could be sort of brought back a little bit. And with the help of their pastors and with the help of a healthy church environment could be reminded of where their priorities really should be. And I think that's the battle here. I really do.
6: Yeah. Thank you so much, Tim.
8: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on to talk about it.
6: Geraldo Cadava is a contributing writer at The New Yorker and author of The Hispanic Republican, The Shaping of an American Political Identity, From Nixon to Trump. Welcome to Fast Politics, Geraldo.
3: Thank you. It's great to be here.
6: I read your article in The New Yorker. I was like, we have to talk about this right away. So you are a professor of history and Latin studies at Northwestern, and you've written books. But this story is really important. And you've been writing about the Donald Trump's push for Latino voters. So, so talk to me about this.
3: Yeah, I think it was, you know, a major story after the 2020 election. One of the main takeaways was that Latinos had different political ideologies and that not all Latinos thought or believed the same thing. That was one of the big stories coming out of 2020, I think. And ever since, we've been kind of checking the temperature of those stories for a while with the 2022 midterms. How would that go? Special elections in California and elsewhere. And then I think, you know, we're gearing up for the 2024 campaign and trying to see where that story will go. And, you know, if it continues, it would be Something ninja represent a pretty important shift, I think, in American politics, a challenge to what many people thought they knew about Latino voters.
6: Yeah, you have Latino voters in Nevada who are from where and where and what are they what's important to them? Sort of give me the landscape of what the Latino voter block looks like and it's not a block, but the the diaspora. Is that the right word? I don't
3: know. It, it's a right word for some Latinos. I mean, I, I think that uh many Latinos are new or recent arrivals and many others have lived in Texas or Arizona or New Mexico for hundreds of years. So it's a that, that already kind of suggests some of it is very complicated. I think it's become pretty customary to say Latinos are not a monolith, but when people say that, I think they primarily mean that we come from different nationality groups. We're Colombian, Ecuadorian, Venezuelan, but we're also spread across the country. We're in California, Arizona, Texas, Florida, New York, Illinois. And what the community looks like in those different places is different. And I still think though that like mentioning the different places Latinos come from, mentioning the different nationality groups, that only really begins to scratch the surface of all of the ways in which we're different. I mean, we're citizens and non-citizens. That gets to your point about diaspora versus people who've been here for hundreds of years. But we're also urban, rural, religious, non-religious, Democrat, Republican. So all of these, I mean, we're, we're young, we're old, we're all over the place i mean which in a lot of ways makes us like any other demographic group in america but i think it's still a process of continuing to persuade americans that we really are different and and buried and gosh i didn't even mention like white black indigenous occupying yeah. every point along an ethnic and racial spectrum so So all of these are the ways in which Latinos are different. I think we do need to dig a little deeper than just noting that we're from different nationality groups and live in different parts of the country because there are all sorts of complexities, even within particular geographies and nationality groups. The important thing right now is that an unfortunate reality of our electoral system is that elections are decided in just a handful of states, right? And those states now are like Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. And these are also places with large enough Latino populations to sway the elections. And I'm still not convinced that like when a Democrat or a Republican candidate goes to Wisconsin, that they realize that they're also talking to like Latino dairy farmers or uh, Latinos who've lived their whole lives in the West. Or when they go to central Pennsylvania, they're also talking to large Puerto Rican populations. And so I think, you know, the map of Latinos is expanding in places that are important politically. So who are the Latinos Trump's going for? I mean, I'm not sure that in his own mind, he's so sophisticated about how to micro-target particular Latino groups. I'm not sure, but that's that's actually been true of um, many Republican candidates. You know, I don't think like Mitt Romney, even for example, I don't think they were about picking apart the South Florida population compared with the Arizona or California population. I think what Republicans try to do is just kind of articulate these broad principles like anti-socialism, anti-communism, family values, religious liberty, pro-business attitudes, those kinds of things. And they, it's kind of like a blanket approach, which on the one hand is sort of offensive in the sense that, you know, they're not really trying to pay attention to what particular Latino communities believe. But on the other hand, I think they are tapping into something that many Latinos believe across the country. So I would say like the, the strongest suit for Trump when it comes... To Latinos of all stripes has to do with, you know, support for charter schools, support for religious liberty, support for slashing financial regulations, giving small business owners loans, those kinds of things.
6: So and the goal is to sort of get Latino voters in Nevada,
3: Arizona, Florida, right? Yeah, that is the goal. I mean, I, I yeah, I think, you know the approach for Republicans for a long time has really been to kind of like deal away just enough of the Latino vote to win narrow elections. I do feel like for Republicans generally now, that calculus is shifting a little bit and it seems like they really are trying to make a play for uh, Latinos everywhere. And, you know, that's interesting because it has never happened i mean and, and that's important probably for listeners to understand i mean the reason that there's so much attention to the stories that we're not we're not talking about Republicans winning the Latino vote, we're talking about Republicans just improving their performance among Latinos. You know, historically, the average Latino support for Republicans has been somewhere between like a quarter and a third of the Latino population. And obviously, that's not amazing. I mean, that's not something that any party trying to get to 50% would be doing somersaults about or anything. But like, as that number creeps up to 38%, which is what Trump won in 2020, or if recent polls oh and by the way molly i know how much you love polls i'm talking <laughs> <about>. <laughs> because we should put we should put all of our stock and all of our hopes and dreams and these polls
6: when we're talking about polls because i do want to like bring this up because i do hate polls but in that last midterm election there was a lot of polling that said that democrats were going to lose the
3: latino vote and they didn't right right absolutely and you know i think there actually has been a lot of arguing About exactly how Latinos voted. You know, I think from the Democrats' perspective, between 20 and 2022, they had grown so tired and frustrated with this story that Latinos are fleeing from the Democratic Party and running toward Republicans that they were prepared to see even a stalemate as, and by stalemate, again, I don't mean 50 50, I mean like holding stable between 20 and 2022. They were prepared to declare victory. Now, You did see a lot of like Latino advocacy organizations like US and Latino pollsters, Democratic pollsters like Matt Barreto and others talking about, oh, you know, Latinos came home in the 2022 midterm election. They, They came back. We told you that this narrative was crazy, but. The more analysis was done of actual voting results after the 2022 midterms by firms like Equis Research, Catalyst, and others, the picture that emerged was that, yes, there was not a red wave, as many had been fearing or anticipating, but Democrat or Latinos also did not come home to Democrats. It was, as Carlos Odio from Equis Research, and for your listeners, I mean, I think I would just say that Carlos Odio and Equis Research- they do amazing work yeah. and they're high some Latino quality. analysts high quality. You should you should be paying attention to them. Yeah. Nonpartisan. I mean they're Democrats. They were, you know, I think Stephanie Valencia and Carlos Odio, they both worked in the Obama administration. They are Democrats, but they aren't, I think, partisan in their approach to reading data about Latinos. And you know, their conclusion was that the 2022 midterms largely offered a picture of stability and that, yes, there wasn't further erosion, but nor was there a kind of like coming back to the Democratic Party. That might look a little bit different in places like Nevada or Arizona, where Democrats were really eager to say that Latinos won the election there. But, you know, I've also seen interesting analyses that have said that the real difference in 2022 in places like Arizona and Nevada was, you know, white liberals, white progressives, kind of overperforming for Democrats. And that even in those places, the Latino vote was about the same as it was in 2020
6: right so you didn't lose them you might not have grown but you didn't lose them
3: if you're talking about republicans yes you didn't continue to win latino support but you didn't lose them and if you're talking about democrats they didn't come home but nor did they you know move further to the right
6: it is an off off year election too which i think is an important data point but can we talk about univision what's happened with univision because this oh, is yeah. really interesting so what has happened with univision
3: it's it is interesting. And, it, you know, I think it's kind of indicative the Democrats response to that, the liberal Latinos response to what happened at Univision was, to my mind, at least like indicative of part of their problem. So basically what happened is that Univision, for the first time in 22 years, as their executives have pointed out, did an interview with a current or former U.S. president or a, a, who was a Republican, a former or a current Republican candidate or president. This is confusing when talking about Trump, because he's both a former president and a candidate. So uh, that's why I'm probably tripping over my words a little bit. But that felt to many Democrats and liberal Latinos, like the network had taken a sharp turn to the right. And it was now as like the actor John Leguizamo called it "Maga Vision" or something else. I can't even remember. But anyway, like liberal Latinos were like really frustrated. And, you know, I've talked to Republican strategists who are Latino who've said things like, well, you know, their reaction is just because they have had Univision in their pockets for so long that any sort of move to the center in, feels like a betrayal. It feels like opposition. And I do think that Univision also, you know, they began what seems like a pretty reasonable strategy to move to the center as they claim to represent the interests of their viewers broadly. But they, they kind of like started that move to the center pretty boldly by having a sit down with Donald Trump and kind of letting him say whatever he wanted to say. And I also think that liberals have a point when they say that Enrique Acevedo, the anchor, the Mexican anchor from Televisa interviewed Trump, didn't push back as hard as he might have when it came to you know, spurious claims about winning the 2020 election. I mean, Acevedo was not confrontational. Now, Univision says that that is going to be their approach. They would let Biden do the same thing. And the point is to let their audience members hear From candidates themselves. Yeah, (laughs) Mm -hmm. exactly.
6: Is this a new tactic for Univision?
3: So, you know, Univision has explicitly said that in 2024, they're going to not necessarily give equal... Airtime time to Republicans, independents and Democrats, but they're going to, I think they called it equity. They're going to uh, certainly air programming with Republican, independent and Democratic candidates. I even read that they are next hoping to get Nikki Haley to sit down for an interview. So that, that is a, a new approach for Unibistown, I think.
6: So, I mean, are they getting pushback and do you think there will be pushback and sort of talk us through that?
3: Yeah, they've gotten an enormous amount of pushback. I mean, John Leguizamo, again, like called for a boycott of Univision, much like Latinos called for a boycott of Goya beans after the CEO, Robert Unamue, uh you know, gave, gave kind of laudatory remarks about Donald Trump in the summer of 2020. So there's been a lot of pushback in, a, in some local markets. You know, it, people have been told that, you know, local networks that are Univision affiliates have you know, decided that they're going to kind of go against the broader company initiative to give kind of Republicans, independents and Democrats equal air time. So there is there is pushback. I think personally, I think the pushback is risky in the sense that when you on is still going to be a really important as as the network that kind of commands the largest Spanish speaking audience across the nation. I mean, by boycotting Univision, on they would risk kind of um, Losing this important platform that they've had for a long time. Personally, I'm also not convinced yet that the decision to have an interview with Donald Trump means that the network writ large is like mega. moving hard to the right. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I think we'll have to watch, we'll have to see. I mean, the network had talked about how they had offered Biden um, an interview months ago, and the details were still being negotiated. Now, Biden's team says that they were never offered an interview until right before Trump's interview. So, you know, we'll see. I mean, we'll see. I think there's a lot of suspicion about Televisa, the Mexican company acquiring Univision. There's a lot of suspicion about how the head of Televisa is a personal acquaintance of Jared Kushner. And Kushner helped arrange the interviews. So there's some suspicion there, but I'm I'm not convinced yet that this symbolizes a sharp move to the right for Univision. But The one thing I was going to say that's representative to me in the liberal Latino's reaction to the Univision interview is that their strategy right now seems to be to just express as much outrage as possible about Trump's immigration policies, the very fact that Univision aired an interview with Donald Trump. And I think it's important for liberal Latinos, instead of, you know, expressing outrage about immigration policies, and make no mistake about it, these are horrific immigration policies, no doubt about it. I want to be clear about that. But it seems to me like the outrage of liberal Latinos about Trump's lies and immigration policies has not really made a dent in his support from Latinos. And I would also like to say that, you know, I know there's this whole debate, a really important debate about how to cover Trump and like, do we focus on the threat to democracy, the potential for authoritarian rule, or do we treat him like any other normal Republican candidate out there on the trail talking about religious freedom and charter schools and pro-business policies, things that Republicans have done for decades. And, you know, that's something I wrestle with in my own writing too. But for me, the reason that that question is so important for Latinos is that Latinos are a group that for so long has been ignored and taken for granted that to me, it is important to talk about their kind of regular old policy views as a way of acknowledging that Latinos believe different things. Like, The fact that Latinos believe different things about charter schools and business and evangelicalism, that to me is an important part of recognizing their humanity and thinkers as political actors.
6: Yeah. Though important to just say once again that Trump is not he's not a normal candidate, though, neither is Ron DeSantis. They're both shopping that same anti-democratic, terrifying vision, which is against everything the founders had intended. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us. Not to put too fine a point on it.
3: You're absolutely right. I mean, it is. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, of course. And now,
7: your moment of fuckery.
6: Rick Wilson.
7: Yes, Molly John Fast.
6: It is time to do our favorite slash only segment. What is your moment of fuckery?
7: My moment of fuckery is the classic, the returning champion, the douchebag supreme, Donald John Trump. We call him El Duche. El Duche. This week, yesterday, in point of fact, he gave a speech. Because he can't stop himself. In New Hampshire, the great state, of the granite state, the great state of New Hampshire.
6: Where he's pretty convinced he might lose to Nikki Haley. So he's freaking out.
7: He's a little worried about that. He's out of, he's, he's getting out of Iowa and going into New Hampshire. And he praised Victor Orban. The best. Who is a raging authoritarian, not a conservative. He is a dictator. And then he quoted approvingly and lovingly. I look, and I guess it's because the end of the quarter is coming up and he wants his performance bonus. <laughs> Vladimir fucking Putin. The one international leader he loves. Vladimir Putin's critiques of America, Trump is reflecting and quoting them and not in a way saying, fuck you, Putin. I will stand against you. It's more like, oh, Vlad, can I rub your feet? They look so callous.
6: Ooh.
7: (laughs) the other thing he did, and he's been doing this a lot lately, and I'm sorry, I do not give him a pass on this because he's an ignorant, ahistorical Fuck wit. That's nice. He has been quoting a line where he says, immigrants are poisoning the blood of our country. Oh, really, Donald? Are, are Is there something with the soil as well? Blood um, and soil, it seems to have a ring to it. I did not see that coming. My <laughs> God. But listen, guys, everybody needs to strap the fuck in because Trump has discovered that- <laughs>
6: He's going full Nazi. The
7: full Nazi thing. He's, to, he's got actually the full... kind of works out for him.
6: White nationalist. Again, it was another week of people saying that Trump wasn't going to be Hitler, which, again, if you have to specify, perhaps you might be in trouble.
7: A lot of your close friends at, at an influential Journal of Opinion believe that. Called
6: The National Review. We had <laughs> Rich Lowry on his podcast, cut up and put on Twitter, saying that he thought... It institutions would once again protect us from Donald Trump. And, you know, he's saying the quiet part, which everyone behind the what scenes is saying. You know, The Justice League? Right, exactly. <laughs> the people who are in the halls of power on the Republican side are trying to convince themselves that Trump won't be the end of democracy, despite the fact that all of us know, including Trump, who says, I'm going to end democracy, you know, and then you ask his followers and they go like, oh, we need a dictatorship. It's time for a dictatorship. The only thing that will save us from Joe Biden wanting to make chips in the United States and giving poor kids free lunches will be a dictatorship.
7: This is a moment where if our actual institutions do not wake the fuck up and recognize what is happening, it's going to be like, remember, I was told very, very confidently by many, many, many people in 2016, oh, there's no way Trump can win. He's an asshole. I know I was one of those people for a while. But the fact that he is doing this openly now, there's folks, Google Red Caesar, and you will go down the rabbit hole of what is going on here. They are prepping the battlefield not to have a Republican versus Democratic fight, but a a fight that is, do you want a dictator or do you want an American president? And there are unfortunately 70 million Americans who want a dictator or they think it's going to work out for them. Right. Exactly. I don't
6: think they want a dictator, but I don't think they understand what a dictator means.
7: Yeah. We are not in a great spot right now as a nation. Not in a great spot. We are not in a good place right now. And if people don't start, I think the technical term is waking the fuck up. We are going to have a real bad, bad, bad a very experience. very
6: unmerry Christmas. Yeah. As many people are saying.
7: Christmas 2024 might not look like mm. anything you've, you've ever imagined before. Because yeah, they'll, be, yes. they'll be salivating to begin the uh, thousand year Reich of Trump.
6: The good news is we'll be in Gitmo.
7: Well, speak for yourself. I have a getaway plan.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Rick. All right. Have a great one. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening.